This SLED Talk features Bill Eggers, Executive Director of Deloitte Center for Government Insights, and Chris Atkins, former CFO of the State of Indiana and current Vice President of Digital Government Transformation for SAP. Recorded live on June 15, 2017. I'm thrilled to have Bill Eggers with us today as our guest. Bill is the Executive Director of the Center for Government Insights at Deloitte Consulting. I've known Bill personally and worked with him for 15 years, and I can assure you he is not only a leading thought leader in public sector technology, but he also has practical experience in governing and has actually put these ideas into practice. Bill also just wrote a terrific book called Delivering on Digital, which specifically addresses the rise in digital transformation in the public sector, what is working, what isn't, the challenges that we all face in public sector digital transformation, and most excitingly, what the future holds in store. And he may have also quoted me in the book as well, which is a plus for me. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for joining me today uh, and our guests uh, and our customers that are on the, the line with us. Could you tell us a little bit about your work at Deloitte with the Center, Center for Government Insights? Uh, sure, Chris, and it's great to, great to be here with you and collaborate on this uh, important topic. I've, uh, I run what's called a, a kind of a think tank within Deloitte called the Center for Government Insights. Uh, and uh, what we do is we look at some of the toughest challenges facing governments all over the world today and how to address them. Uh, we produce about over 40 studies a year and books and webinars and events and um, literally do hundreds of briefings uh, with public officials all over the world. I've been uh, running Deloitte's research operations uh, for government now for 14 years. Uh, in that time, I've written, written nine books. Uh, and as you mentioned, I've also worked in government before. I ran the Texas Performance Review uh, for several years. I was a commissioner for the city of Los Angeles uh, many years ago. And essentially, I've been working around government reform, efficiency, public-private partnerships, and so forth for close to 30 years now um, in government and think tanks and in the private sector. Well, thanks for that introduction, Bill, and uh, I know uh, our listeners are going to enjoy getting to know you and, and your work as we talk, you know, over the next half hour or so, but let's really dive into the smart city topic. Uh, Bill, I want to start with uh, a question centered around uh, what smart cities actually are. Uh, we hear a lot of rhetoric uh, about what they are, a lot of rhetoric about what cities are doing, uh, but I think we should really pause and think this through with your insight. So, Bill, what do we mean when we talk about smart cities? Well, you know, Chris, most discussions of smart cities tend to focus on the infrastructure piece, big data and information technology being used to better manage urban assets such as public transit, wastewater systems, roads, and so on. Um, and the term smart would typically denote physical assets connect connected to the Internet of Things, via sensor technology, that then generate a whole bunch of valuable data. And so you're thinking, think smart parking meters, smart street lights, smart water use. Um, and so both, you know, in a broader figurative sense and literally connected devices really help make these trains run on time, right, and can yield greener, more efficient cities. Um, but I think 
I think the definition of smart cities has to go beyond that. It has to encompass more than just infrastructure and city services. A truly smart city would leverage technology to elicit the wisdom of its citizens. Um, a smart city, it won't have a population that is any more intelligent than a traditional city, but it will enable much smarter decisions by both city planners, by individual citizens, and by groups. And, you know, a thing to consider, cities are already smart. They're one of the most the most incredible inventions of humankind when, when you think about it in their evolution over the years. So smart cities is about actually making them smarter and, and better decisions by planners, city citizens, government officials, and by other organizations. I think that's really helpful, Bill, on the definitional front to really hone in on what we're talking about. I also like to think that a smart city is a city where digital and digital thinking, not just traditional IT, but as you mentioned, design, citizen-centered, digital thinking is at the heart of the strategy about how a city is going to deliver services to the citizens. Um, and we certainly see a lot of activity and initi initiatives being defined under the umbrella of smart cities. So on this slide, there's a lot of, of examples listed of smart city initiatives. Could you talk through a couple of those and why they should be considered smart under the definition uh, that we're discussing here today? Sure, Chris. And, you, you know, there's so many amazing uh, initiatives in cities all over the world right now that are doing really, really interesting things along these lines. I, I actually got to spend some time at uh, Bloomberg uh, Philanthropies and their What Works uh, group, which basically is looking at all sorts of uh, best practices in cities all over the world, and especially in the U.S., and then how they can spread those best practices a lot faster than, than we've seen before. And so these things, a lot of them revolve around, around the better use of data, better use of evidence, and the ability to connect a lot of the new data streams that we have to make better decisions. So one of, the, one of my favorite examples is the um, Smart Santander project in the Spanish city of Santander. I'm actually going to go visit them in a few months. And the city-run uh, project involves 20,000 sensors. And they measure everything from traffic flow to parking spaces and noise and pollution, temperature, moisture levels, just about everything you can imagine. And what I really love about the Santander example, again, thinking this notion that um, a truly smart city leverages technology to elicit the wisdom of its citizens, which is kind of an, a, a, a wisdom of the crowds approach, they, um, Santander residents can add to this whole information flow in addition to that 20,000 sensors by downloading the Pulse of the City app that then turns their smartphones into sensors. Um, and so it's a similar model to a, a Waze kind of a model. And then the city um, residents themselves um, can help again, to make the city smarter in that way through it. And they become a co-creator in, in city services in many ways. So Santander is doing some, some really interesting things right now. But then you also have projects in, in Amsterdam where they're basically convening an innovation ecosystem among all the different sectors and, and investing and getting like basically playing a role as an ecosystem integrator. Um, so public sector, private sector, startups, and others can invest in smart city technology. 
That's terrific, Bill. Uh, before we move on uh, from the, the definition area and start to get into some of those examples, uh, I want to share a quote with you from Steve Goldsmith, someone you and I both know very well, uh, former mayor of Indianapolis and a former guest on this webcast. I would love to get your reaction to it uh, before we leave this particular topic. Steve said, quote, City Hall should work as a platform to connect communities to each other, giving residents a way to partner with neighbors to prevent problems and collectively solve others, end quote. Bill, isn't this quote a roadmap for how we should be thinking about smart cities? Absolutely. I think, you know, Steve and I wrote a book together uh, 14 years ago called Governing by Network, which looked at uh, the role of government in achieving public value by engaging other other sectors and other entities in trying to create greater public value than government could on its own. And that means working with the private sector, working with nonprofits, working with social enterprises and so forth. And and absolutely in the digital age, if you think about, you know, a lot of the biggest innovations in the digital age, they're platform models, right? Um, uh, you have Facebook is a, is a platform. Google is a platform, iTunes is a platform, and eBay. People can build off those platforms and create all sorts of things from those, those basic platforms. And that's where you also get this notion of the network effect, which drives all sorts of innovation. And increasingly, government's role is, is switching from um, being basically a problem solver, trying to solve all the problems and deliver all the services, to basically being a, a problem enabler and a, problem, and a recruiter, a solution recruiter and enabler, where it's creating the environment and creating the platforms that then allow individual citizens, that allow companies, and that allow neighborhoods themselves to help solve a lot of the problems. And that, that truly is, I think, the, the promise of a, of a smart city. And again, it gets to that notion that, you know, if you engage the whole population, if you engage many citizens and so forth in, in co-creation, um, you're going to come up with a, a better solution in the end than if it's just a, a small group of city officials sitting in a room somewhere. Bill, thanks for that terrific insight on what smart cities are. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about why they are needed. What are the trends that you are seeing globally and in North America that are driving cities towards smart initiatives? Uh, you know, Chris, there's a, a lot of uh, trends that are making this uh, happen. We actually uh, track uh, over 250 uh, different trends and uh, over 50 different drivers at our Gov2020 um, project and, and our site. And I think some of the key ones that are impacting this movement towards smart cities would be, first, you, you have some demographic issues. Um, the unprecedented kind of movement of people to cities all over the world, you know, particularly in Asia and Africa and other areas away from rural areas to these mega cities that they're seeing. And, and, and literally in order to deliver services to them, in order to govern and so forth, um, cities have to adopt or smarter solutions because they're, you know, the 17 million people, that sort of thing. It's just huge. Um, secondly, there's a whole set of technology enablers for this. Um, artificial intelligence, which is getting better and better at uh, at an exponential rate right now. I mean, the 
advances in computer vision, in um, machine intelligence, in robotics, and, and so forth are enabling us uh, to do all sorts of things that were simply impossible f before. Um, and then you also have uh, other uh, technologies like the Internet of Things and sensors and the, the digitization of government, which is, which is probably one of the most important trends happening today both in, in the private sector and in the public sector, which is the digitization of the enterprise and digitization of the interaction with customers, citizens, and businesses. Another, I think, important uh, driver of this is the sharing economy. Um, the Lyfts and Ubers and Airbnbs and a lot of things like that are, are driving different ways of, uh, of citizens kind of both, you know, where they stay, how they get around, uh, enabling something called mobility as a service, which we'll talk more about in a, in a little bit. And then I, I would say lastly, there's this notion of co-creation and crowdsourcing and so forth. Um, you know, I call this a, a billion to one. It's a, a whole new way of kind of delivering um, personalized products and services because what it is is you, you're taking crowd-based insights and getting continual feedback from citizens, and then you're shifting to providing services to a more personalized kind of citizen experience using things like behavioral nudges and data analytics, and you're creating in that respect an adaptive system. So services continually evolve based on the insights garnered from different citizen feedback loops. And, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but that's some really, really fascinating things that are changing how cities do everything from building inspections to food safety inspections. Bill, I think another factor that often gets overlooked is mobility of the workforce, especially in the younger generations. Uh, which you and I can't really say we're part of anymore, unfortunately. Uh, people can and do move to find, as you know, to find better economic opportunity and higher quality of life, and you couple that generally with the move towards mega cities. And I think what that means is a city's brand matters a lot to attract uh, that young mobile workforce, and I think smart city initiatives can certainly help uh, with that type of branding. I also think aging city infrastructure is another challenge that's pushing cities to become smart as well. Uh, we certainly saw that in Buenos Aires, which we're also going to talk about later. But uh, now let's uh, – you mentioned this, and I want to drill in on it a lot more. Uh, let's, let's drill in a little bit on the concept of citizen centricity, which I think is both a risk and an opportunity for smart cities. Bill, I just love this quote on this slide that you sent me. I think it really goes to the core of what uh, you slide on citizen centricity uh, and the importance of design when we talk about smart city initiatives. Can you talk about uh, this quote and share some thoughts about how we can keep, can and should keep the citizen at the center of smart cities? Absolutely. You know, Jane Jacobs is, is probably the preeminent urban philosopher of modern times. And, um, you know, this, and she tells this story. I mean, there's this really fascinating that prior to the construction of the Freedom Tower in New York City, um, she suggested that the Ground Zero site scrap its existing street grid. And she told this parable. She said, I was at a school in Connecticut where the architects watched pass that the children made in the snow all winter. And then when the spring came, they made those the gravel pass across the green. 
And so why not do the same thing here? In other words, instead of trying to pre-design and plan it, you just watch where people actually walk and then you build it from there. And this, uh, I think, parable exemplifies an idea that's common to a lot of her theories of urban design, namely that the best designs respect the wishes of actual city dwellers. Um, she really took a dim view of these grand designs of central planners, and she even once urged her audience to respect in the deepest sense the strips of chaos that have had a weird wisdom of their own. And Chris, this gets to the point I made at the very beginning, which is that cities are already smart. Cities are smart, incredible invention of humankind. And what, what you want to do is respect that and build from it, not try to impose something else from a central planning perspective from the outside. Uh, this is great, and it, 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 it's so transformative. It, it's not just transformative for cities, but frankly for the entire public sector. It's really no longer even about, like, providing services, quote-unquote, as much as it is letting the citizen participate more fully in government, enabled by uh, a lot of the, the new technology that's available. So I, I just love this, um, and, and I love uh, sort of how it crystallizes how we should be putting the citizen at the center of our thinking, whether we're designing smart cities, whether we're designing new government programs. Uh, so really, thank you for, for, for sharing this story with us today. So, Bill, before we get into some specific smart city initiatives and um, what's happening in a couple of real cities, let's zoom way back out and talk again about the framework that uh, at Deloitte you helped put together for smart cities. Could you walk us through this framework and talk about how our listeners could use it to start defining their smart city strategies? Sure, Chris. You know, we looked at what's going on all over the world from a smart city standpoint. Uh, we looked at, you know, everywhere from Jakarta to Tokyo to Seoul to London and so forth. And what we found was kind of a common way, you know, a way of viewing this because people were just like, what is smart cities? How do I understand it? And I think if you look at it through, you know, part of this framework is really about these domains areas. Um, the economy, mobility, energy education, um, smart living, uh, you know, which is, is both what's going on in your neighborhood and, and also you know, smart health care and human services, and then, uh, of course, the environment. And um, if you actually break them down, there's a, a lot of fascinating things going on in each of these cases, and oftentimes there's different departments involved in it. But um, more than that, you see within some of these domains, certainly around um, environment and education and security mobility, you see a whole array of um, startups that are doing pretty amazing uh things in these areas, real breakthrough, I would say even some kind of disruptive innovation going on, along with a, a lot of uh, more traditional, both tech companies, but also infrastructure companies and so forth. Um, but what, what you don't want to do is have these happen in isolation. And so part of the framework, too, is looking at it. How, how, how can you bring some of that together, you know, some of the mobility and environment and even security, so you both have um, better ways of getting around but also greater security. And if you think about some of these areas like mobility and the movement to autonomous vehicles, um, it's both going to impact the environment in a 
very, very positive way, but there's also going to be some serious security concerns. Um, so what we wanted to do is bring together that this needs to be an integrated way of thinking about it. And then there's some broader, uh, there's some broader themes. You know, you're seeing you're in much greater citizen engagement, as we've talked about, and and, and literally citizens as co-creators and and delivering services. Much greater engagement with um, the business community, the tech community, and so forth, in in developing these solutions. Much greater transparency into government through open data and through data visualization. Uh, we we built with the MIT Media Lab a website called Data USA that has over 1.8 million visualizations just based on all sorts of open data that's out there, Census Bureau data, Department of Labor data, and you can go into every single community in the country and actually do a very, very big deep dive onto, you know, what are the key industries in that community, the education levels, the top jobs, where people are going um, to college and coming from, and that's simply just based on open data. And the more cities make that data both available and uh, put into a, a visually compelling way that people can understand, then again, that helps um, citizens, businesses to make better decisions, um, again, so cities can be smarter. And this keeps on getting to that. One example of this was uh, in New York City. They created something called the uh, New York City, the Business Atlas, and um, it took a lot of the data that they had, and if you're in a business, you can go in there and put a whole variety of things about your business and and so forth, and it will actually help you to understand where's the best place to locate your business within New York City, within a block-by-block -block basis, based on uh, how you answer those questions. Great public service and a way to facilitate um, you know, better economic growth. Bill, thanks for that insight on your framework. Let's dig into a real-world example now, and we're going to talk about two. Uh, but first is uh, the city of Buenos Aires. Um, can you walk us through um, this slide and talk to us about how they put a lot of these smart city strategies into action? Sure, Chris. Uh, you know, Buenos Aires, uh, I was there a couple years ago. It is huge city and it's spread over 78 square miles and it owns all massive amounts of public infrastructure and maintaining that kind of public infrastructure is just a big challenge over such a huge space and so they've long allowed citizens to kind of log complaints or service requests through a call center for everything from fixing a pothole to removing graffiti but that the feedback mechanism was totally ineffective because the city was very slow in addressing those complaints. It averaged literally 600 days, almost two years, to resolve a complaint uh, back in 2011. So they decided to resolve this problem, uh, and the solution was a, a new IT system, um, an SAP system, that would streamline this information flow and improve then the departmental coordination. And so they launched a mobile app that um, citizens could use to register complaints or they could flow in via social media. So at one example, let's say a resident sees a problem like a manhole missing or a broken sidewalk, she can then tweet a picture to the ministry along with a short description. And then the app, it uses a GIS technology, sends the location of the complaint to the ministry and the work is assigned to the nearest vendor to resolve the issue. And then to close that loop, a city street inspector using a mobile device would then validate the work done by the vendor and upload a picture 
through the app showing that the issue was resolved. Um, now, a number of cities are doing that, but Buenos Aires has gone a couple steps further in that they use dashboards to make sense of all this real-time data that flows in also. So the dashboards provide insights on the status of each complaint, how the ministry is addressing it. It's capturing citizen ratings on resolved and resolved complaints. Um, and that enables the city to evolve these kind of very hyper-local solutions for certain areas. Uh, for, for example, the city is now able to predict floods in certain areas using sensor data. And the city faces a lot of floods due to its location right on the shores of a river. And apart from using the data for weather reports, the sensor network um, and sewage drains can now measure the speed and direction and level of the water in the sewage drains and feed the city data to IT systems and so forth. So this has really created a sea shift in how citizens kind of view public services in Buenos Aires. The average time to resolve a complaint fell 93% without any additional budget, allowing the city to fix a lot of other problems that it could, could previously not do. And it's seen an index, a huge uptick in almost every level of citizen satisfaction indices, including um, satisfaction around green spaces, around street works and public lighting and stormwater drains and so forth. So it's a really great story of, um, again, using using smart city technologies, but a whole new different mindset where a real focus on the citizen. And also, again, here, citizens played a role because citizen a sensor uh, concept where they're actually sending in a lot of the information about problems. Bill, Buenos Aires is such a great example for all the reasons you mentioned. You have citizen participation, which you have emphasized on today's webcast as being really at the heart of this. You have leveraging, of course, the cutting-edge technology, but then I, what I love is you have such clear results, which you show on this slide, in terms of infrastructure quality and quality of life of the citizen. Uh, so thanks for sharing this example. Now I want to shift gears and go to the other side of the world and uh, talk about another specific example as well as a, a, a new promising concept. So here we are on the other side of the world in Helsinki uh, from Buenos Aires. Um, but first, Bill, you guys did a terrific paper on the concept of mobility as a service, or MASS for short. Uh, can you touch a little bit on the key findings in that paper before we talk specifically about how that concept was applied in Helsinki? Sure, Chris. Um, so one way to think about what mobility as a service really means is, you know, Netflix has totally changed the way we search for, consume, and pay for media, right? And it's all kind of on one platform where we can get movies and documentaries and TV shows and just about anything we want. Now, think about if the same business model were to be applied to urban transportation. I think it could really transform the way urbanites get around. Um, so think about this as, as mobility as a service is like a, kind of like a Netflix for urban transportation where you have one digital platform that integrates all the end-to-end -end trip planning, booking, electronic ticketing, payment services across all modes of transportation, um, whether they're public or private, whether it's bus or um, whether it's uh, Uber or Lyft or shared economy. Um, or whether it's um, bicycles or, you know, any mode of service. And um, it's a marked departure from where most cities are today and where 
you know, how mobility has long been delivered, but rather having to locate, book, and pay for each mode of transportation separately, um, what mobility service platforms would do is let users plan and book door-to-door trips using one single app, and they would be able to see how long it would take them, the environmental impacts, and a whole variety of different figures you could kind of put on that. And I think that could really change how we get around in urban areas. I just love this idea and concept, Bill, and I think it's going to be so transformative. Um, And I think, again, gets beyond this idea of just providing a service like bus uh, or subway. Uh, to actually providing something of value to the citizen, which is they really want to go from place to place. Uh, they might care about the channel, but what they care most about is just getting where they want to go efficiently. Uh, and so thanks for sharing that concept. Now can you talk a little bit about how uh, Helsinki is putting uh, this concept into action as a smart city initiative? Absolutely. You know, Helsinki is a really interesting city, uh, in general, around transportation, they came out with a proposal um, in a project that uh, we wrote about a number of years ago in, in one of my books called Helsinki 2025. And the idea behind Helsinki 2025 was that you would, no citizen, no resident of the city would need to own a car by 2025. That was their goal, no matter how many kids you might have, no matter all the different requirements that you might have, what they wanted to do was find a way to fulfill those um, through an integrated transport system so you could get around um, very easily without actually owning a car, you know, if you wanted to. And one of their um, first initiatives to kind of realize that goal is something called Helsinki's WIM app. Um, and what this app does is does exactly as I talked about before. It provides a digital platform that integrates all these different um, services, um, both from that the public sector provides, but also from the sharing economy, all into one app. And um, all modes of transportation. And so Helsinki, and it's a really beautifully designed kind of digital interface on it. And that's Helsinki's attempt, really, it's the first project that's going to move towards this end goal. And I I think also when you think about autonomous vehicles and we're looking at, you know, whether 2025, 2030 being a a breaking point where we might start seeing those on a a large basis, what, what apps like this do and what, you know, using more kind of sharing economy mobility as a service to, it gets people more used to getting around um, without actually owning a car because autonomous vehicles are going to be much more about that essentially. And what, what these sort of projects do is they start preparing people and getting people used to it, you know, years ahead of autonomous vehicles because I do think that that's going to end up being just such a huge kind of cultural difference and change management issue and so forth. And by actually putting these things in place, mobility as a service, you know, far ahead of time, um, it gets people much more used to that sort of thing, getting around without actually owning a vehicle. Okay, Bill, uh, let's bring this a little closer to home, at least for you and I, uh, based in the United States and uh, most of our listeners based in uh, the U.S. or North America. Um, This slide uh, is talking about the federal Department of Transportation Smart Cities Challenge. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what kind of activity you're seeing as a result of this challenge uh, in the U.S. 
Sure. I, you know, the Federal Smart City Challenge was a really amazing uh, challenge. It, the U.S. Department of Transportation issued it um, about a year and a half ago or so, and you had um, 78 applications uh, from cities all over the all over the country. You ended up having seven smart city finalists, and they were announced at the South by Southwest last year. And uh, then the winner of the Smart City Challenge was announced in June. And that winner, of course, was Columbus, Ohio, and it was a $50 million prize. And uh, one of the reasons Columbus actually ended up being the winner of the Smart City Challenge was that they brought into their application very, very significant um, uh, investments and uh, from the private sector totaling close to $100 million o- overall, over time, pledges and investments into this. So it was really truly about public-private partnerships, and I think that's the, the, the best smart city um, projects we see all over the country. They're very creative about how they're using uh, private financing, and and integration with the private sector. You know, I, I wrote a book called The Solution Revolution, how business, government, and social enterprises are teaming up to solve society's biggest problems. And, you know, when you look at the smart city space, I, I there's very few areas where you where you see any more of it any more of that teaming up between the sectors than smart cities and i think that's holds the promise to it you know even some of the finalists chris um that didn't quite win um have basically said that you know they they, they spent so much time in their application they're so excited about the strategic plan that they put together that they're going to find another way of funding it i was in denver a few months ago, and the mayor of Denver, and Denver was one of the seven finalists, um, and he said, we're going to make this happen, we're going to go forward with it. And some of it does get to, Chris, what you were mentioning earlier, was this is you know about brand uh, in many respects, too. People want to move to cities that are going to have um, smarter infrastructure and better decision-making and where services are seamless and that you know you have a lot of intelligence built into all of these sort of applications that help people to get around. So there's there's a lot of momentum uh, around smart cities right now. You know, in, in general, I think cities are where some of the biggest innovation is occurring right now in our country, and it's just very exciting. And um, and in this case, the federal government provided, I think, a, a really important catalyst uh, and motivator and uh, convener for us to see a lot of this sort of innovation at the local level. Yeah, Bill, I love what you said about public-private partnerships, and I think that's a good transition into our final slide because I think what public-private partnerships are also doing is helping um, the public sector solve the revenue challenge in terms of paying for smart city initiatives. That can be a real challenge, and I think um, a lot of public-private partnerships are helping cities solve that side of the challenge, um, but but – um, the final slide here talks about another challenge, which I thought was fascinating uh, when you shared these slides with me, and that was the um, urbanist technologist divide. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this uh, for our audience and uh, what causes it and, and perhaps how it could be solved uh, in, in smart city initiatives? Well, it's a it's a divide. We you know we see these sort of divides in a lot of areas. And I like think about uh, in public policy area, we see oftentimes a divide between those who are um, 
developing legislation and the kind of the politicians and the people, the legislators and those who are actually having to execute it. Um, and so oftentimes then these grand designs that have been put together are not executable. And we see a similar divide, I think, within uh, some urbanists and technologists. And uh, with, the, with the urbanists, we'll say, as technologists come in with a, a, a lot of um, kind of point solutions that are going to solve all of these sort of uh, problems, um, but without that sort of a bigger knowledge of, of the city flows and how cities actually work and how decisions are made today. And that gets to some of the um, collective decision-making, that what I talked about, the historical thing that cities, the cities are already smart in many respects. And so I think, you know, good planners, what they try to do is understand those, those flows. On the other hand, I think some technologists would say that um, a lot of the planners are not up to speed on all the latest technology, on whether it's Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, and what have you. And so because of that, that they can't fully envision and understand a lot of what's possible today that wasn't possible when they first learned this. So we, we really do have to close that gap in the same way we have to close the gap between policy designers and those in the bureaucracy executing them. I think for smart cities to work, we need, um, the, we, we, we need the planners to be working much more closely with the technologists and you know, understanding each other and bringing creativity uh, that they can both bring to this process. You know, we saw this same divide in a little bit different flavor at uh, the state of Indiana. There we had the agencies who knew all about frontline service delivery to the citizens, um, whether it was um, infant mortality or recidivism. Uh, and you had, you know, uh, our MPH team, which knew all about the technology and program analysis and data analysis. And uh, we just had to get the two to talk and collaborate uh, with each other, uh, which was the key. And it, it ultimately kind of goes back to the old divide between IT and the business, which is uh, uh, something you and I fight every week, I think, and try to educate people on as well. So, um, But thanks for that insight on, on that issue. I do think it takes a little bit different flavor in smart cities, but it, it is it, it kind of all goes back to uh, the divide between IT and the business and the, the need for the two to work together. Bill, I'd just like to thank you um, again for joining us today. I do want to do some questions and, and answer sessions uh, here um, uh, for our listeners. Um, one listener would like to know, um, what are some of the other major issues that hold back smart city initiatives? Uh, could you highlight some of them? We talked about the urbanist technologist divide. Uh, we talked a little bit about revenue. Uh, Bill, what are some of the other uh, issues that hold back smart city initiatives? I know you cover a lot of these in your book, too, but uh, could you help our listeners understand some of the other issues that they may have to solve to really move forward with smart cities? Chris, I think the number one issue is the the, the data piece or in, and really the data sharing and kind of having a, a data layer. Um, because what, what's going on right now is a lot of these smart city initiatives are really interesting and fascinating, um, but they're one-off solutions and they're not necessarily always kind of tied into the back-end systems of the city. Now, Buenos Aires was, it, was, in a, was absolutely the opposite of that. Um, I think one of the reasons why it works so well is how tied in it was um, 
to all of the city's sort of back-end systems and, and so forth. And so when, when you're talking about all the sensor data that's going to be coming in and all this other data, there needs to be this kind of notion of a data layer um, and where you're tying in through APIs and so forth a, a lot of these services and eventually where you have the real intelligence where, you know, once street lights might automatically go off, that would actually trigger a variety of other sort of things that would be happening. So that's a key area. Another another key thing is kind of just the human capital issues and having enough people um, with, I would say, a digital mindset and a digital savviness, you know, working um, within these organizations who can uh, both lead these and support them. Uh, almost every government uh, I know complains about, about that issue. Uh, you know, a third issue is this notion of public-private integration and who does what role within all of this that's still being sorted out. And, and lastly, I would say is the governance piece. Um, how, how are you governing um, these within, you know, you've got a data governance issue, you've got kind of potential privacy security issues, you've got all the public-private sector sort of things. So it's very complicated for it all to do. And the last thing I think that's important, Chris, is that smart city initiatives shouldn't happen in isolation to other initiatives. We see very big movements uh, in cities with innovation labs, with evidence-based decision-making, with the kind of what works initiatives. And the smart city initiatives need to be integrated with all of those. And sometimes you'll see them kind of off to the side and not fully integrated. And I think that's where we need to work towards in this next stage of smart city development. You know, uh, just, again, based on my experience in Indiana, the HR and the governance issues were uh, critical for us to solve. That's a downside. The upside is, though, to solve those, if you're a technology group, you almost have to collaborate with others outside of, of your organization, which will build the uh, partnerships that you need to solve those business problems that you mentioned. So um, couldn't agree more uh, with with your list of issues there. Again, you cover a lot of them in your book, which I would, again, recommend to our readers. Final question, Bill. One listener wants to know uh, the best way to get started if their city doesn't have a specific smart city initiative. Where's the best place to start? Well, first of all, I, I, I bet most cities will actually have initiatives that are kind of smart city and initiatives going on. They might not be calling it that, but uh, what they may be lacking is an overall strategy uh, for where do they want to go with the smart city? How is it going to integrate into this? How is it going to fit into their economic development goals, um, a lot of the other mayor's goals? And I think that's the most important thing to do. You know, we when we looked at, we did a global survey on digital transformation uh, over 77 countries, and we found that the biggest dividers between those countries that were doing, were, I say, proceeding ahead uh, from a digital transformation standpoint in a, in a rapid way versus those that weren't was the lack of a strategy from those that did not have a, a digital strategy actually were just lagging behind from a human capital perspective, from uh, an execution perspective, from a culture, digital mindset, and so forth. So getting that strategy down and then being, and making sure you have the people to execute against it and the political will to do so is the first place to start. Excellent, Bill. Well, thank you so much for time today. Um, listeners, I know um, you've benefited from hearing Bill talk. 
uh, about smart cities. Uh, here's our contact information. If you want to learn more, I know Bill and I both um, would love to field additional questions that you may have. Please email one or both of us for those questions. Also, um, listeners, please click on the third Thursday icon below to register for future discussions with other state and local government thought leaders. I'm excited to announce that next month we're going to have uh, Hardik Bot, the energetic uh, chief technology officer from the state of Illinois, on our webinar to talk about that state's digital transformation efforts. You definitely won't want to miss it. So we'll see you all again next month for the third Thursday Thought Leadership webinar series. Thanks, everyone.